0: Let's cut to the chase. The world of work is changing. There's no stopping that change. Welcome to the Better Work Project, brought to you by the team at SoftEd. I'm your host, David Mantica, and joining me as co-host is Andy Cooper and Lauren Gibson. In this podcast, we will explore the changing world of work, what the future of work means, how it affects businesses and workers alike, and how we can create more productive productive, and engaged workplaces. I hope you join us for the ride. Enjoy.
1: Welcome back to the Better Work Project. We're back with episode 28. In the podcast today, we're going to be discussing coaching, how it's changed over time, how it will need to change in the future, and how we can create a culture of coaching, starting with leadership. And well, who better to join us for this podcast than one of the preeminent thought leaders in the field? Today, we are delighted to be joined by Lisa Adkins, coach extraordinaire and author of Coaching Agile Teams. Lisa, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us today.
2: I'm so glad to be with you all. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Let's start with your coaching focus, Lisa, has evolved to leadership. So I want to ask, how do you define agile coaching from a leadership perspective?
2: Well, my coaching focus evolving to leadership, I think, is a trend or a trajectory we see with a lot of agile coaches, that we can get the agile teams delivering beautifully, being in flow, and then, of course, there are these organizational impediments that create a glass ceiling for how much they can accomplish. And even if the organization is asking them for you know better delivery on one hand and then on the other hand, sort of tying their hands behind their back... Mm-hmm then I got to thinking, well, where does that originate from? You know, where might I be able to lend my skills and my talents to try to not some of that? And so the natural natural place to go, and so many enterprise coaches are going here, is to work directly with leadership teams. But the coaching for them is really different than agile coaching.
1: Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think in the past, there was this premise that the manager knew what to do. They could rally their their troops to achieve their objectives, but that doesn't really work anymore when the manager doesn't know what to do. And so as a result, we're seeing the shift from manager to coach. Mm -hmm. Andy, what have you noticed in terms of industry changes? Why do you think leaders need to be better coaches?
3: I think they always have had to, just haven't perhaps either been able to or had the desire to or being rewarded for being that. So mm. I think it's, I think that just the pace and change of the world, you know, and how we've seen that obviously with COVID, how complex things are, how things can change, that just can't keep on top of things. And more and more the, the role needs to move back to, you know, the, the shaper type of role, the person that creates the environment, not the person that has to be the, the font of all knowledge.
1: Mm. So, Lisa, I want to ask you how you see the role of the leadership coach.
2: Well, essentially, exactly what Andy is saying, helping leaders, um, not only leaders at the top of the organization, but little L leaders everywhere in the organization, Mm -hmm. but helping people essentially become a match for the complexity of the world around them and the complexity of the business situations they're in. Because we, we are definitely in an age where decisions aren't simple there are many choices and there are many competing factors. And, and it is so that our level of de- adult development, by and large, even in the most successful organizations, is not at a level that is a match for the complexity of the situations people are in. So really, I mean, in a nutshell, I think that's what I'm helping leaders do, and I'm focusing with leaders at the top of the organization because I want to start to help break through some of those glass ceiling places. You know, by and large, it's really just helping leaders step into a world in which they have to learn how to sense and respond rather than predict and plan. And so that's mm-hmm. like a like a nutshell or a bumper sticker kind of way of saying it. But there's but that's there's a lot to that because that's a huge journey for each person to take is this recovery from this notion that I can predict and plan things, and boy, that used to work a little bit better than it does now. And into sense and respond, which is terrifying for most people, honestly.
3: Yeah, and I think aligned to that is also to be the, the one that has the answers,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, to, to these problems. So come to the boss, to, you know, for, for the font of wisdom that will provide you the answer to the problem.
1: Andy, you and I were both reading an article yesterday about how some leaders perceive coaching to be quite soft, but it's an incredibly hard practice to let go of our inner advice monster, isn't it?
2: Mm-hmm. and One of the things I realized is that coaching can appear soft to people as really like an overcompensating mechanism initially when people realize, oh, my gosh, I don't have to be the font of all knowledge to be useful. Oh, my gosh, I don't have to be inserting my opinion every third sentence to be Mm. useful and maybe go just a little bit too far the direction of listening and asking open questions and those sorts of skills that those are the heart or the connection skills that help people explore, but professional coaching skills also have back a backbone aspect to it. You know, it's a, it's an incredibly, it's a, an incredibly useful set of vertebrae, if you will, the skills of holding the focus of being rigorous about the client's agenda, about every single conversation ending with them agreeing to some action that's going to forward their momentum and forward what they want. So, If you're newer to coaching, you might be going a little bit too far in the heart skills. Mm -hmm. heart H-E-A-R-T skills. I can realize people hear that as hard, but those are actually hard skills, too. So that's kind of an interesting Freudian slip. But then the backbone also needs to come in, Um, and it's incredibly rigorous. I mean, just like Agile frameworks themselves, when done well, they're incredibly rigorous.
1: Well, that leads me to sort of ask around, you know, often agile transformations don't go particularly smoothly. In fact, a lot of large-scale agile adoptions fail due to a lack of adoption at the leader level. So I want to know your thoughts on why this is happening and, and more importantly, what we can do about it.
2: Well, I can only speak to my recent experience that I'm working with leaders who have a lot of good intentions for agile flourishing in their organization, and they don't. Know how they need to shift to help that happen. And so the work I'm doing with leaders right now is to give them a model and a set of definitions that they can use to know what their journey needs to be to further enable their organization. And that model and those definitions that I'm really loving these days, and I've been using this for years, is called the Leadership Circle. And it's a 360 Assessment, including a self assessment, that shows the leader in no uncertain terms whether or not they're equipped for the modern age and equipped for the complexity of the situations they're in. And most find out that, mm, yeah, not as much as I would have liked. You know, the reflection I'm getting back is that I'm not operating in a way that is enabling the organization. Mm-hmm. And so once we have that data and that look, like these little vignettes of how peers and direct reports and bosses, and for some of these people, the boss is the board, right? So once they have that reflection back, then we can start to look into, okay, so what are your underlying beliefs that are running your behavior and are having you work in an older model that's no longer a match for the current world? And that can be a very rich experience for people, and I'm really loving doing that work.
1: How do you find that transition when people realize that the skills that have always served them no longer serve them? It must be quite confronting.
2: Yeah, it is. It is. And so one of the things that can help with that, it, it, this might sound strange, is to do it in a group. <laughs> so if this works really well when there's like a leadership team that decides mm-hmm. to do this together. Each person is getting their individual results, but they're doing it at the same time. And so there's this sort of feeling of creating a little bit of of an environment that is deliberately developmental. I love that phrase that shows up in Robert Keegan's work. It also shows up in the book Evolve Agility by Michael Hammond, creating a deliberately developmental environment for these leaders where they're all going through something. It's not just one person off to the side trying to develop themselves. They're all being confronted in some way in a similar time frame. And so we can set it up so that they can support one another and also be challenged and supported by coaching at, you know, like, you know, every three weeks or so, that sort of thing, to help them move forward and help them deal with, like, the real things on the ground, the real problems, the real business problems they're dealing with and help them see different ways of working with it, ways that weren't available to them before. Andy,
1: I'm interested in your insight here. How do you think leaders can better model coaching?
3: Well, I think this is... Really made some key points. I think that creating a collaborative um, environment where they're all in and they all, you know, basically make a commitment to each other that they'll support each other and challenge each other from the from a learning perspective. You know, f- for learning in a way to learn something new, you, you, you've got to fail multiple times for your brain to sort of pick up. That's what you now want to do. So, if you think about that from an organizational context, that's not going to work very well if you're a leader. So some ideas that I've heard that are good for that and possibly within the context of that leadership circle idea is simulations Mm. you know get them to practice stuff where they can fail in learning these new behaviors and do it several times to the point where that where the new behavior starts becoming embedded and natural and they feel good about it not stumble which is I think the the big challenge most people have when they're trying to transition you know use that term liminal space you know between Mm. where I want to be and where I want to get to. And that's the hardest part because people see that you're trying to change, but sometimes it gets labelled as you're not being authentic. And so people can often revert back in that period because they're not rewarded by it and they feel clumsy because they're just learning. But if we can create a safe space for people to learn and fail and, you know, we actually adopt some of these new mindsets and behaviours, and I think that's another powerful method. So ideas, things that I've heard people do You know, if you're moving to a new business model, you know, you rehearse stuff, you know, so they rehearse things as a group and practice.
1: That's really interesting. I I really like how you talk about that journey being quite lumpy. So it's not just that you see a a different way and you can immediately um, act in that environment that you might be, you know, illuminated on a new way of doing things and yet, and you're motivated by that, but in doing it, it, it's hard work. And so there might be some stumbling blocks where you need to rebuild your confidence and and go again does the the peer setup help that so you can share experience and talk to I guess failings and learnings and what are your thoughts there
2: yeah in my experience it normalizes that lumpy process Mm. you know that because essentially what these leaders are doing are exactly what Andy just said creating for themselves an experiment I like the simulations idea by the way so that's tucking that one back in the back of my mind <laughs> but with you know but the, what they're doing is creating themselves a small experiment that they can number one just just the first step is create awareness so create awareness of like what are the times that I step in and squash other people's ideas and then like tomorrow I ask them to be creative like where mm. do I do that because mm. those those two things are obviously going to not work well together so creating awareness and then running a little experiment like so so if I'm willing to let go of the reins a little bit, what area would I be willing to have results happen that are not exactly how I would do it or not exactly how I'd want it, but are good enough, you know, and then checking in with peers. And so I do think checking in with peers and peers, not just chit chatting about things, which is our normal way of doing it. So like, how'd it go for you? Oh, pretty good. How'd it go for you? Oh, pretty good. Like, no, 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 Actually teaching them skills for deliberately developmental environments so that they are holding more of a coaching role with each other so that's kind of like a two for one right so -hmm. they're learning coaching skills they're learning about accountability they're learning how to help one another deepen each other's insight and learning and also helping each other learn how to forward the action you know not just sit in the liminal space every time and and ruminate but create a a well-formed experiment and then And this is the hard part, being accountable for it. So all those backbone pieces of coaching come into how this peer setup can work. And, you know, I think it's sometimes really successful and sometimes less successful. And it really depends on how much people can handle. You know, I mean, this is a pretty much, this is a confounding time for us as human beings. Mm. And I think it's oftentimes everyone, leaders included, will sort of back off their own development a little bit because it's just like so dang
3: hard you know yeah i I agree i think that's a big challenge with with this is that all all we've been talking about you know is hard it's Mm -hmm. mentally hard and it requires Mm -hmm. deliberate effort and practice and a lot of people don't make the time or or don't believe they have the time and mm-hmm. so this gets sacrificed. So I'll do that some other time. And that's why it gets pushed down, I think, some quite often down below. It's not, as you said before, Alyssa, I think the intent is there, but it's, it's actually making the time and effort and energy and having the energy. And that's yeah. a big part of the problem at the moment.
2: You know, it's also having scaffolding. And what I mean yeah. by scaffolding is like practices that you can just adopt that are in the new way you want to be. And a piece of the scaffolding that I love lately, I loved it so much that I, I agreed to be the narrator for this book. It's called Lead Together. And it's actually it's actually co-authored by Susan Basterfield, who is a fellow Kiwi who lives in the Wellington area. Here we and go. also well, by Must Travis be also awesome yeah, <laughs> Travis, Travis Marsh and Brent Lower, the other two authors. And it's basically like you know, if you have the intent or if you have the value system that we are now starting to call, you know, modern organizations or teal organizations, if you have that value system, I mean, a lot of your next questions are like, okay, yeah, but how on a daily basis? Like, how mm-hmm. do I make legal agreements? How do I help people have more flexibility around their roles without throwing everything up in the air and creating chaos? You know, how, how do I step into my power and when do I step back out of my power? the questions like that, and they are like incredibly practically answered in this book, which I love. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. because, And it's not that these are like the answers or the way to do these things forevermore, but just like agile frameworks themselves, the practices in those frameworks are like one known way that gives you the result. So like start with that way. And then once you get the result, then you can see for yourself how you can adapt the practice to get the same kind of result.
1: Yeah, I guess it allows the building of momentum as well.
3: I was going to say, yeah, the scaffolding that you mentioned before, that, that's often the hard part. Where do, where do I start? It's all overwhelming. It's too much and too big. Mm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, like we are in most organizations who are, that are trying to bring in these more collaborative ways of working. One of the places they're getting stuck is in consensus hell. Where every decision is by consensus, and it sort of looks like everyone's sitting around in a circle talking all day long and like nothing moving. Do you all know, do you all know yes. what I'm talking about? Yeah, we do. Okay. Yes. Well, I mean, some some of the some of the newer decision-making structures are. You know, not everything has to be by consensus. We can actually work on a consent basis for at least some things, maybe quite a few things, and but it's just Teaching people, you know, a couple consent-based practices, essentially step-by-step practices, to get moving in that direction. Because we've got to, we've got to lever ourselves out of death by consensus somehow. That kind of links
1: back to the point about momentum. That you know, sometimes we have to disagree and commit, and that can be hard for people. You know, in this new world, it
3: can and be hard. It, yes. it is hard. <laughs>
2: Well, because the, because the container for that and the presumption is still a consensus model. Mm. And if you disagree and commit and three out of four people didn't want it, then mm. you have three hostages, essentially. So <laughs> I,
1: I like the framing of that. Right. Mm. So
2: so if, but if the container is that for this particular thing, we're going to go for a consent model. And a consent model basically looks like this. I mean, the most, the most widely practiced one or the, most, the one that most people know about is called the advice process, which Frederick Laloux talked yep. about in his book, Reinventing Organizations. And it's, it's incredibly simple, but it's really powerful. And, and actually, there's another Kiwi company in Spiral that created a, a piece of software called Lumio specifically yep. for mm-hmm. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea is someone asserts, here is the thing I'm going to do. And then they go consult anyone who would be impacted by that. Maybe not every single human being, right? But maybe representatives of the different groups that would be impacted by that. And the idea is they'll take that advice on board, but they don't have to capitulate to everyone's idea. Mm -hmm. Right? And then they, they take it on board. They're going to really think about it. They're going to adjust things if they think they should adjust things. And they're going to come back and say, okay, here's what I'm doing. Yep. And it, it works well when all of that conversation and all that input is in public space. And so that's why the, the tool Lumio works well, because it puts it all in public space. It's a record of the, the advice process itself and the advice that was given. It's a record of the decision. And it's a, it's a historical artifact, because so often people are like, what are we, how do we make mm. that decision again? Did we make that decision?
3: Interesting on that. I just seen. So, have you heard of Aaron Dignan before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Aaron's just set up a, a startup that that's actually focused on on that exact problem. So he's just they're just in beta at the moment with with a SaaS based solution that's specifically targeted at at agreements. So I, it's an interesting little thing to, to no, follow. I've
1: heard of that, Andy. That's interesting.
3: Yeah, yeah, because because he sees that you know obviously their work at the the ready is very really similar and they see that the whole issue around decision making is one of the huge barriers to agility. So if mm-hmm. you can, we say streamline, if that make it more transparent and mm-hmm. faster, you can actually, mm-hmm. you know, solve one of the bigger pains in organizational life effectively.
1: It's actually quite interesting because we started the conversation talking about context setting for the leader um, and context setting is important equally in decision
2: making. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, you know, we're, we're all going through these levels of adult development and these shifts in the values memes that we find most appropriate for, you know, our situation or the given zeitgeist or the given social setting we're in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like collaboration, empowerment, hearing all the voices, joy and diversity, like that's where that's where, we're, where we've been growing into for a while. Now, there are some pitfalls to that values meme, right? And one of the biggest pitfalls is that we have joy and diversity, and we can't figure out what to do once we've heard all the diverse voices. right? Like how how do we privilege a certain perspective? Mm-hmm. right? And so that's what the next values meme is giving us, which is the which is one about essentially personal agency, so personal agency comes back, but the agency, in a way that would not sacrifice communion would not sacrifice good for more people and in essence wouldn't harm people mm. that's what we're up to basically we're learning we're learning how to take agency without screwing people
1: <laughs> it just sounds simple but Sometimes again, not as simple as you might it's think. Not,
2: yeah, it's not. It's not because mm. we're because we're coming through mm. the adult development level that picks up the skill of multi-perspectival point of view. I've heard the the, the sorry, term no. that I
3: heard conciliant was quite a nice term for mm.
2: conciliant. Yeah, yeah.
3: We need isn't more like of that like the
2: union of something <laughs> isn't, isn't that what that means—the union of knowledge or something like? Yeah, that? well, just
3: union of different ideas um, yeah. and practices. To you know, and, and so if you think about from a coaching point of view, then that's and it's bringing into your work all these different practices and not limiting yourself to one set of ideas. You know, I think that's to me. You know, that's what agile needs more of. Anyway, we'll get to that later, but that's. Well,
1: Yeah, I want to jump into that because I think, you know, you're talking about managing polarities and I want to talk about how do you think agile coaches act as transformation agents and how can we manage things in a complex world where there are different perspectives and different ways of doing things?
2: Well, I think our skill set is improving over time is what Mm -hmm. I would say. So what I notice now from, from the bird's eye view of agile coaching is that we now have coaching schools coming online for enterprise agile coaches and those schools even having different philosophies about it but that all teach to a core set of learning objectives or competencies and if you look at what ic agile has created in the working group of experts of agile coaching Mm -hmm. enterprise agile coaching in particular you can see what these learning objectives are and so I'm involved in one such school, Integral Sense Making in Action, with Michael Hammond and Michael Spade, who are the teachers, and I'm I'm one of the mentors to help the people uh, really use the more complicated models to deal with a more complex world. The sort of models that are being taught in in this curriculum, which is coming from both Michael Hammond's book and Michael Spade's book that he authored with Michelle Mador. so. We're getting more knowledge out there is what I would say because people have already started building the skills of agile coaching when they take the you know team level and multi-team level courses and when they practice themselves. And then now the question is how do we um, have new models for a more complex scope and how do we take the skills we have and bring them to a wider audience, especially one that has, like with executives, a much more far-reaching impact.
1: Is there an example you could perhaps talk through? Maybe help me
2: help me work help me narrow it down a little bit.
1: <laughs> so maybe there's a particular model that you you see a lot of aha uh-huh moments that you could yeah. give us a brief overview of.
2: Yeah, the one that I use the most with my with my leadership clients and the one that is in the Agile Transformation book by Michael Spade and Michelle Mador. And actually, the one that Michael Spade and I previewed in Wellington about six years ago. So, mm-hmm. another New Zealand version. Nice tie Isn't <laughs> that amazing? Isn't <laughs> that amazing? Everything is Wellington. It's, it's called, it's, it's an application of the integral model to the agile world. Mm-hmm. And the integral agile transformation framework is what it's called in the agile transformation book. But basically, what, what that does is it helps. Agile coaches at the enterprise level and the the teams they are serving, so a leadership team or a transformation team is typically who this enterprise coach is working with. It helps all of those folks move outside of their myopic view of a situation because it has four different perspectives in it, this Mm -hmm. model. And it turns out that most of us walk through the world seeing situations, seeing problems and challenges through the one perspective that is sort of natural or native to us. So it's our strength, but it's also our bias. Mm. And it turns out that there are three others that you can will yourself to look through, to get a lot more information about the situation. And then one of the things I always encourage leaders to do is to come up with at least two interventions from each of those four perspectives. So you have eight possibilities. And then from there say, okay, what do we guess is the possibility that would have the greatest impact? Let's try that one. Let's try it for a short period of time and see how it changes the system. See if it moves it in the direction we're hoping for.
1: Do you find with your work with coaches that people are aware of their biases, or is there a bit of a self-awareness process that recognizes that when you come into a role, you bring with you a set of experiences and a lens which you see the world that might be quite different to everyone else?
2: I think I would say probably self-taught enterprise agile coaches that I encounter don't necessarily, I mean, they recognize they're human and they have biases sort of in a general way. But if I ask them, you know, what is what is your native perspective from an integral perspective or or what, what is the level of adult development that you reckon you are at?
3: Mm.
2: Stuff like that. You know, they're they wouldn't be able to answer that question. And so uh, those questions. So I think that I think that some of these some of the training is really useful because people just don't know all these different models and ways of looking at themselves until they encounter it. And are, and are led through it by someone who understands it deeply, but also who understands the human transformation process and understands how confronting it is for us to recognize, oh, my God, I've only been working with like half a, a deck of cards.
1: It's quite a <laughs> reckoning moment, isn't it? <laughs>
2: yeah, it is. It really <laughs> is, right?
3: Or, or, or even less than that, I think. I think when I started my sort of journey back in, you know, not that long, well, maybe five or six years ago, I had no idea what I didn't know at that time. And I now know that I know that I don't know a lot.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but actually, we were talking about training before. So how do you think we can work with leaders to develop them into coaches?
2: Well, I think leaders just need to be coach-like. I don't necessarily know they need to be coaches, mm-hmm. but, the, but the idea is just to be more facilitative in general. and. <sighs> Boy, I, I think in abstract, all of those things like might make sense to leaders. But until there is a really uh, clear, clarion call why they need to use coaching or facilitative skills, it's just a good idea. You know?
1: so, so you talked about coaching-like. Can you make mm-hmm. the distinction of what is applicable and what you think might not be?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think for... For leaders at all levels in an organization, there is the desire to have an organization that is much more fully functional, where people are in their full capabilities. And there's also the competing force, quite often, of momentum and urgency. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking about polarities earlier, right? And so like, where as a leader, a question I would be standing in a lot of the time is where am I focused on creating capacity and capability? And where am I focused on the thing that has to be dealt with this moment? And I'm hoping over time we can move more toward there's there's less of a decision between those things. but I think that I think that leaders are still in the position of sometimes there is a decision that needs to be made and there's a rallying cry. And the leader says, we're going this way. And so that's why I think that leaders need to be coach-like. Leaders have an agenda. I mean, so like just right off the bat, they don't pass the test of a professional coach from an right. ethics point of view. Right? That's right. Yeah, right?
1: that's why I wanted you to make the distinction because I thought there was it was quite an interesting point that there's the skill set, but it's quite a different function, isn't it? hmm Mm-hmm. Mm. mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, so just imagine how great it would be to have leaders that actually know how to listen, who know how to help themselves and others explore and come up with insights and not just keep, you know, kind of turning the same crank, going through the same routine. So that would be great. And a leader's job is to run a business, Mm. right? And so having business goals, being clear about where there is room for exploration and where there is time to move now. Yeah, I think I just had a conversation with, with one such leader actually, it was my last coaching call just an hour, an hour before this. Mm-hmm. And what she was working on was, when do I tell them that their runway is about to end? That they've had all of this time to figure things out and now I have so much pressure you know, how do, how, do I, how do I work with that? And so we mm-hmm. worked on the skills of designing an alliance. So as a leader, she's going to use the skills of designing an alliance, which is a professional coaching thing, but she's going to be using it in a way to go like, look, here are the pressures I'm under as a leader. I want you to step in my shoes for a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you were me, how would you be feeling? What, what might you be thinking about? You know, and then now let's design together how are we going to be with exploration and with momentum?
1: Goes back to the question of context that we were talking about earlier. Andy, you work with a number of customers that are seeking to do this. What have you found to be beneficial? I mean,
3: yeah, it's, it's a tricky one because I think that it all comes back to what we were saying before. It's like, firstly, I think there's just a desire and an awareness. So, you know, do I, do I have the desire and, and the self-awareness to understand where I'm at really? You know in terms of Mm -hmm. a development and Mm. growth and being open to to be challenged and realize that you know that doesn't make me a bad person or a bad manager or something it's just an opportunity so i think that's the start point is really that openness to to be coached and be coachable and and then from there you know the then i think the other big challenge i always see is this this pressure that people are under with you know the high intense workplace that is finding the time. It's taking that essentialism sort of concept to figure out what it really is the most important things that I can be doing versus things that I'm doing that are more theater and using some of that time in self-development and developing other people and sh- or shaping the environment for those other people to grow. And I think those the sort of things that I see that are prevent this It's that first there's self-awareness and the secondly then making the, having the time and making the time to actually make these new behaviors
1: gosh i love your comment about business being theater in some regard
3: <laughs> yeah I was, uh,
2: I was like hmm, what do i do that's theater i think answering <laughs> email like i i get a kick out of answering emails sometimes you know like it, it feels yeah. good
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I think and meetings, emails and meetings are what I call work theatre, because they can consume a lot of time, but they don't necessarily generate a, lot of, a lot of value. And mm-hmm. I think it's just being able to sort of figure out which of those, you know, which emails do I need to respond to, or do I need to be included in, or, or who who do I copy in, and which mm-hmm. meetings are really essential. And those are things that really drain, I think, the energy and, you know, time for a lot of people.
1: And distract, mm-hmm. Absolutely. My next question is a question I have to admit I've been dying to ask you. <laughs> so you talk about <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> you talk about organizations being human systems. Uh, so I want to know how we're systems and how do we work with the system to best effect?
2: Yeah. Well, mm, yes, organizations are human systems. They're also business systems. They're both. It just happens that my particular strength, which is also my particular bias, is the human systems part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so from an integral model perspective, you know, I have a lot of skill in the, in the I quadrant, which is individual introspection and development, mm-hmm. and in the we quadrant, which is groups of people basically uh, functioning well together to produce some sort of result. And so, yeah, so what what would you like to know about this?
1: Where would we start? We could have a whole podcast, honestly. (laughs) I think, you know, most people are aware of organizations having kind of a cog-like function, being heavily mechanistic, and now we talk about more of an evolved structure, but I'm kind of interested in the human aspect.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So well, what I out. notice, what I notice about pretty much every modern way of working, and let's just talk about agile for a minute because it's an easy one, it's an easy example. Pretty much every modern way of working has human relationships smack dab in the middle of everything, either making it really wonderful or gumming up the works. It's mm. so like, if you think of the Agile Manifesto, individuals and interactions over processes and tools. So, what makes us focus more on individual interactions and make that work? Human relationships, right? Customer collaboration over contract negotiation. Same thing. Human relationships are in the middle of that. Responding mm-hmm. to change over following plan Same thing. And the, and the fourth one is the same. So like whether or not we like it, our ability to be in a healthy human relationship system absolutely predicts business results. And so I think it's worth paying a lot of attention to that and getting really, really good, not just only at interpersonal skills like me and another person or me functioning with a team, but relationship systems intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of professional coaching that I'm really qualified in. It's the one I decided to certify in because it was just so fascinating to me. Like, how could you help a human system become more of what we talk about in Agile? more self-aware, more self-intelligent, more self-managing and self-regulating. It's cool stuff. It is. It
3: It is. is. And it's inspiring. I mean, um, I just listened to a podcast a little, a few weeks ago, and it was around a book, a guy called Hubert Jolie from Best Buy. And that was quite inspiring. As someone that I had heard, I didn't know much about prior to that, that really seemed to understand this concept of, you know, organizations as human systems. And I think where he came from was that that was a growing, like a lot for a lot of us, a growing realization rather than something that he he was born with. So I think Mm. that that's what gives me hope. We can, if we want, learn to create organizations as functioning human systems.
2: Absolutely. I think humans will rise to the challenge. I mean, you know, what came first, agile or complexity? That's a chicken and egg question. I often think about agile as like this brilliant, emergent response to a more complex world, yeah. you know? And so the same thing with this guy from Best Buy, you know, we didn't have to know about relationship systems intelligence when we were working in a more mechanistic way, but so many things now rely on our ability to have really clean, clear, functional, even joyful human relationships at work. That we're going to have to get good at it.
1: And how do you see the role of the agile coach evolving to deal with more complexity?
2: Hmm, that's a good question. I also want to say I'm not sure the role needs to evolve much because agile coaches, even at the team level, were already like smack dab in the middle of all those relationship systems complexities. But as we said earlier, I think maybe this is where this is where maybe the leading edge is. It's the it's in, you know, well trained and well developed enterprise agile coaches being able to help. Organizations and leaders work with complexity rather than trying to dumb it down or ignore it.
1: Or work against it.
2: Mm. Or work against it, yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Well, if you're both ready, we're going to press on to our rapid fire round. So, how this works is I'll give you a, a sentence for you to add to. So, I'm looking for just a quick sound bite from each of you. You ready to go?
2: It's going to be fun. I can already okay.
1: Okay, I'm going to ask you, Lisa, and then, Andy, you can go second. The best coaches are?
2: Ones that know the focus they're going for and are willing to help the humans get there. Andy?
3: Cool, I love that. Humble, curious, supportive, and challenging.
1: Okay, next question. Leaders need to learn how to. Lisa?
2: Oh gosh, am I first? This is hard. Okay, hang on We'll <laughs> <laughs> mix it up next time oh, it's good. Leaders need to learn How to Be human and make their own changes So that people are willing to follow Them when they have to change Oh, great answer Andy?
3: Ooh, I don't know if I really want to follow that one but no, no, <laughs> <I got it. laughs> My one was pretty lame It was just continually developing Themselves and their, their people
1: No, that works too Andy, you're up first for this one. So one thing we're getting wrong about coaching is?
3: Probably too much advice, monsters.
1: Mm, yeah, I know. I'm guilty of that. Lisa?
2: One thing we're getting wrong about coaching is too much heart, and we need to bring in the backbone.
3: Ooh. Oh, nice. wow.
1: Yeah. Okay. Andy, my greatest hope for Agile is?
3: I think it's about returning to its roots, about values and principles, and less about methods, practices, and religious wars.
2: Mm. And, Leslie, that's your ending for the podcast. My greatest hope for Agile is that we use it to solve planetary issues.
1: Oh, wow. What a great place to end. We we
3: have a big big double tick on that one from me as well.
1: Likewise. And that brings us to a close. That was episode 28 of the Better Work Project. Lisa, we want to thank you very much for joining us, for sharing your expertise and your insight with us. That was a great conversation to have. Yeah. I'm glad you so found thank it. You. So,
2: I really enjoyed the way you did this, and I learned a lot from both of you during this conversation, so thanks.
1: Well, mm-hmm. we enjoyed it, and I'm sure our audience did too. We want to thank our audience for joining us, and we'll see you next time on The Better Work Project.
3: Bye. <laughs>
0: Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Better Work Project. If you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you have specific suggestions or ideas for future podcasts, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. Continue to fight the good fight. We'll see you the next time on the Better Work Project. Thank you.